semester I'd like to do a series of talks on enlightenment and empowerment. So tonight is the beginning of that series and mostly tonight's talk will be about mindfulness. So to begin with, I'd like to explain what empowerment means to me. Empowerment means knowing what it is that we want to accomplish in our lifetime and discovering a path that will enable us to do just that. What, it, what is it that you most deeply want to accomplish in your lifetime? What do you want? Most people, when they consider this question, feel that what they want most deeply is to be happy. Especially in our Western cultures, but I think in all cultures, human beings aren't conditioned to think out very thoroughly what it is that will bring them the most happiness. Society offers us certain things in terms of our well-being. Usually people spend their lives accumulating material possessions or developing an intimate relationship or looking for a good job, raising children, or creating interesting hobbies or sports. And all of these things can bring us a relative degree of happiness, but they cannot yield a deeper kind of happiness that most of us sense might be possible. It's not to reject these aspects of our lives, but to understand that they have their limits. When people at different, usually difficult times of their lives acknowledge that yes, there is a deeper kind of happiness, they have no idea how to learn how to experience that type of well-being. When I was quite young, I had a very difficult childhood, probably an extremely difficult childhood. I began searching very deeply at a young age for this kind of happiness. And what I did in the earlier part of my life was to seek out times alone in nature to learn about stillness, peacefulness. I spent the middle part of my life so far living way out in the woods and having a good job and a relationship. And I still sense that there was something missing at that point in my life. That yes, there was something deeper. And it, there was, it was just burning in me. I knew I had to keep going. And eventually, I found this path of Buddhist meditation. 
Joseph was talking last night about Deepama, who died recently. She was meeting her was a very important part of my journey, especially for me to see a woman who had suffered so much and had raised children and lived a a lay life. To realize in actuality that it was possible to be that fully empowered, to be that fully present, and to radiate such loving kindness and be so deeply content reinforced what I sensed was possible and inspired me to really work hard in my meditation practice. Finding a path is so important. Vipassana meditation, as part of the Buddhist meditation, is meant to bring forth our deepest potential. It's meant to bring about a spiritual birth called enlightenment or awakening. This pathway to enlightenment, this path of Vipassana, enables us to experience the deepest kind of happiness and peace. This pathway to enlightenment requires balance, the balance of different qualities of mind. In our culture, we can recognize this as a balancing of masculine and feminine energies. I don't mean male and female bodies by this but opening to the potential masculine and feminine energies within each of us human beings. By feminine, I mean the qualities of softness and gentleness, of allowing and acceptance, openness, receptivity. By masculine energy, I mean the qualities of precision, alertness, discipline, firmness. In Buddhism, the development and balancing of these different aspects of masculine and feminine energies are expressed very beautifully and thoroughly as the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness is the first factor of enlightenment. It's necessary for weaving together and balancing all the other six. The second, third, and fourth are investigation, energy, and rapture. Investigation, energy, and rapture are arousing qualities. They're energizing qualities. The last three are calm, concentration, equanimity. These are softening, tranquilizing qualities. What I've noticed in myself and in teaching is that we tend to be imbalanced toward the soft side or toward the energized side. All of us tend to be strong 
and weak, depending on which side. I've also noticed that we innately tend to reject the side of us that's the least developed. So for me, I had worked for many years at developing a gentle, open, soft, receptive kind of attention. And for me to work with precision and firmness and detail, microscopic attention, was very, very difficult. I had a lot of resistance to it. And yet this is what brings about, for me, a lot of growth, even though it's so hard, because it's what I needed to develop. If you just think for yourself for a while, what is it, which side of you is the most developed? And do you tend to resist deepening and growing on the side that isn't? It's the art of a lifetime to bring these qualities into balance. When these seven factors of enlightenment come to balance within a person, one is said to be awakened. There's a deep inner unity. An enlightened person's mind shines with happiness. And this happiness is the fulfillment of the path of meditation. It's what it's all about. It's what we deeply yearn for. So the first factor of enlightenment is mindfulness. The Buddha said that by practicing repeatedly and persistently the four foundations of mindfulness, that one could become one's own refuge. One could become one's own inner light or island. The four foundations of mindfulness include all the aspects of one's life. It includes being attentive or mindful of one's body, one's feelings, consciousness, and contents of consciousness, which I'll describe in more detail in a while. This is very profound, and yet it's very simple. He say, the Buddha said that by paying attention very, very closely to our life experience, that we could discover the truth, that we could become our own light. In this practice of mindfulness, the understanding or wisdom is based on our own direct experience of the truth, the Dhamma. It's experiential. It's not theoretical. It's not based on accumulating any knowledge. The more one practices, the more aware one is. Each moment of mindfulness brings about the potential for more understanding to develop. The more understanding, the more light, the more happiness. And this light 
inside us all is this deepest potential that we all have the potential to reach as human beings. Just before I left Honolulu this year, there was a woman who sat the three-month course last year who I talked with on the phone. And she said to me that during that three months, that it's the closest that she ever felt to herself. And she yearned to come back for this next three months. She lives such a busy life. It's a very rare and precious opportunity to do this kind of deep exploration. When we come here to have this profound kind of intimacy with our moment-to-moment experience, it's important to remember that it includes all of our experience. It's not just what we want to be happening. It's getting close to the full range of what's possible. And sometimes it's very difficult. When we start to quiet down, what do we see? Generally, we see the monkey mind, the wandering mind, the untamed mind. How much contentment have you experienced today, yesterday? The Buddha said, the mind is difficult to see, very delicate and subtle. It moves and lands wherever it pleases. The wise one should guard one's mind, for a guarded mind brings happiness. A guarded mind brings happiness. Why? I'd like to explore with you how easily it is that we get lost on a moment-to-moment level. Say you're sitting here right now and your eyes are closed and the sound of geese honking as you're sitting here arises. You could note hearing and just be aware of the experience of hearing itself. It's developing this quality of bare attention. And the next moment, you're with this this just experience of hearing, the vibration of the hearing itself. And then the next moment, the thought might come, oh, that's the geese flying south. At that point, you could note thinking. You wouldn't get involved in the content of the thought. You could note thinking, and it might end. But if you believe that thought, the next moment the thought could be, I think I better get up and make sure they're flying south. (laughs) Or (laughs) you might want to go look out the window to see, 
you know, if they're in a V formation. Or you might start thinking about migrating, you know, the birds migrating. Or you might start having these wonderful childhood memories of autumn and burning leaves or whatever. And these, these kind of primal sounds can bring up the most um, joyful or sorrowful feelings. It's amazing how quickly we can go from the direct experience of hearing to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes lost in thought. I just wanted to give a very simple example of this because it happens so quickly. And it's so... um, (laughs) That's a very uh, innocuous type of example. It might be that somebody uh, is breathing loud nearby. And it's very, that's is a very different type of example. It's very difficult just to be with that bare attention, that bare experience of hearing itself. It might turn into extreme aversion within two seconds. We easily get lost all from not being mindful moment by moment of the sound, of the thought, and of the next thought. And the bottom line is that any moment that we're not aware or mindful, we go off. That's how it is. And then we suffer because we haven't seen clearly. The idea behind mindfulness is not to get anywhere special. And it's not to accumulate any kind of special experiences. It's to develop this mindfulness so that we're not lost in what's happening. This development is called wise attention. And this purity of attention, this clarity of seeing, is what brings the happiness. We live in an ocean. We live in an ocean of the senses. There's this constant contact and separation and contact, disappearance, arising and passing at all the six sense doors, the sights and sounds, smells, tastes, touch, thoughts, And mostly our minds are so disturbed, they're so scattered, that we don't even realize that we do live in this ocean of the senses, and that mostly we're lost at sea. Henry David Thoreau once said, not until we admit that we're lost can we find ourselves. When we can admit that our minds are this easily caught, so easily disturbed, then we can begin to explore. Then we can give our hearts to this practice. When we admit that we're mostly lost in the sensual world, we begin to see the need of a primary object 
the need for an anchor. The anchor or primary object is something to come back to, no matter what has happened and no matter how long you've been lost. At the moment you become aware, you can anchor the attention again. You can start again, begin again. This is the most precious thing that you can develop, this beginner's mind. The reason that we suggest the breath as a primary object is because it's fairly accessible and fairly neutral. It's part of the first foundation of mindfulness, which is exploring one's own body. The breath is the beginning. We start with the rising, falling at the abdomen or the in and out breath at the nostrils. And first we begin to take an overall view. There's the investigation of the shape and the movement. We begin to see that, yes, this anchor can be a place to begin again, to have a refuge. Over time, you'll start to see that it can also become a place that you can actually sharpen your attention. You can begin to look very closely and see, what is breath? What is it that I call this movement? One of the most ephemeral balances is being able to feel very closely the sensations within the movement of the breath and to know what it is that's happening there. I'm sure you've been all struggling with aiming and rubbing and sustaining the last day or two. It sounds good, and usually when you hear it the first time, Mostly that first sitting, you can do it, and it's very inspiring. And then it almost seems like it disappears more and more from one's experience. Maintaining that ability to bring the attention there, to actually rub it, and to keep it there long enough to actually look and see what's happening, it's really difficult. Mostly I suggest these next weeks, the first weeks, is just to have some gentleness with yourself and see if you can just bring your attention to what's happening. If you can't quite aim the attention there, just be okay with where you can keep the attention and softly see if you can just be with the movement. That's mostly what you'll be able to do. That takes softness and gentleness. And then sometimes you'll be able to look more closely and see some detail. Great. But then it'll probably not be able to be maintained for a long time. It'll build over the weeks. If it disappears, just go back to being with the movement again. There's the movement of the breath. There's body sensations. We explore whatever is predominant in our body area. 
There might be hardness, softness, tingling, burning, cold. What is it that we call my body? Apart from our ideas about it, And then we can explore all the functions of the body. There's seeing and eating, reaching, urinating, blinking, swallowing, dressing, bending. You might not believe this, but you can get enlightened feeling the sensations of a fly on your arm or nose. You can get enlightened listening to the sound of someone's loud breath next to you. Each moment is total and equally important. Each moment of our life, there's this possibility of awakening, of opening fully to what's happening. There's the four postures of lying and sitting and standing and walking. This includes the physical movement as well as the posture. So the first foundation of mindfulness is exploring one's own body. The second is exploring feelings. And in this context, it doesn't mean emotions. It means the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality that's possible in each moment of consciousness. With each moment of consciousness, there's contact with an object. And simultaneously with this contact, There's a quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality. And we have no control over this. It's a given, moment by moment. And when these feelings are predominant, they can become the objects of meditation for us, which we'll go into more in the instructions in the mornings. It's because we're not aware of the pleasant feeling that arises with the contact that the wanting mind arises and we hold on to what's happening and we suffer. It's because we're not aware of the unpleasant feeling that will arise with the contact with an object that we push away the unpleasantness and aversion arises. We don't want what's happening to be happening and then we suffer. We're at the mercy of pleasant and unpleasant feelings unless we're aware of them. For example, say boredom arises and maybe an unpleasant feeling arises with that boredom. If we're not mindful of that, aversion will come next. We don't want the boredom. We hate the boredom. Mindfulness of boredom would be, oh, hello, old friend. (laughs) It's just boredom. No problem. 
And it may be unpleasant, it may be neutral, and we can learn to open to that. We can learn to open to the landscape of boredom. Aversion means we're pushing it away, and we think that the boredom is the problem. But really what's happening is we're having aversion to the unpleasantness, and that's the problem. We're not aware of the unpleasant feelings, and so we push the boredom away. And that's the suffering. If we're mindful of the unpleasantness, we don't have to push away the boredom. We can open to it fully. And it'll come, and it'll go. And we'll develop this deep understanding within that. I just wanted to stress that the pleasant feelings or the unpleasant feelings are not our problem. Pleasantness is okay and unpleasantness is okay. With awareness we can learn to open to the full range of our experience. In regard to pleasantness, often at the beginning of a retreat one of the emotions that will arise for people is loneliness. As we move into this time of aloneness, we tend to miss other people, friends at home or family at home. And if you look more closely, you can see what we're wanting is the pleasant feelings associated with that person or with that place. And in that moment, we think that we're missing the person or that we're missing the place. But really what we want is that pleasant feeling. And if we don't see that clearly, that wanting in that moment is so painful and we suffer. What's being said in Vipassana is that life is a stream of pleasant and unpleasant feelings and that when we hold on to the pleasant or push away the unpleasant, we block the flow of life and we suffer. So the first foundation of mindfulness is exploring one's body. The second is exploring that quality of unpleasantness and pleasantness. And the third and fourth are very closely related, and I won't go into them very much tonight. They're awareness of consciousness and contents of consciousness. Awareness of consciousness is awareness of different mind states as they're colored by these mental qualities such as the greedy mind or the angry mind or the clear mind, the wandering mind, the forgetting mind. Contents of consciousness are any time you're aware of sights or sounds or smells or tastes touch, or thoughts. This also includes the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment. 
these four foundations of mindfulness are meant to be very inclusive. That it includes the totality of our experience. Mindfulness is not just passive and it's not just active. It's a balance of activeness and passiveness. It's very active in that we come, we bring our attention face to face with whatever's happening moment to moment. It's seeing clearly what's happening without judging, without interpreting. It's like a mirror. Mindfulness is a process of protection because it brings about the possibility for freedom from inner oppression. When we're a victim of what's happening in any moment, when we don't see it clearly and we're lost in it, we react with fear, control, manipulation, defensiveness. We're separate, and this isn't the truth. An example of this is, say, a judging thought appears in the mind. That person is wearing ugly socks, or I'm really a stupid jerk, or whatever it is. We can't control these judging thoughts from happening. We can't control any of the thoughts that are happening. They just come and go. If we get lost in these, when we believe them, it's a nightmare. It's so painful. When we're not lost in them, it's so simple. We just let them come and go. And they're not a problem. Even the most vicious judging thought, or the the most noble thought, we have no control over them. They'll just come and go. This mindfulness that's so non-judgmental and non-identified creates so much space in the mind, it takes the sting out of existence. This constant contact at any of the six sense doors, it's very, very intense. And the only way out of this intensity is through understanding. It's through going so deeply into our own experience that we understand that it's not about in-the-body experiences or out-of-the-body experiences, our attention can become so close to our moment-to-moment experience, so intimate with sensations, that there's no inside the body and there's no outside the body. There's no separation or division. There's just pressure and it arises and passes. There's just heat. There's just hearing. And each moment is total and full, just as it is. 
when we see this so deeply and clearly, we're not identified with what's happening anymore. And this is freedom. What is the cause of mindfulness? Mindfulness. There's no other cause. There's a teacher in India that many of the people I know were close to named Neem Karoli Baba. And I heard that he said that you can plan for 100 years, but you never know what's going to happen. And this is the truth of things. We really never know what's going to happen moment by moment. It is possible to develop the strength of attention that can flow with this incredible change with the stream of contact and not get lost. It's really our only protection. Each moment of mindfulness has such a delicacy and it's very easy to lose the thread. So it's important to remember to just keep it simple and try to just do it. rather than to keep trying to figure it out. Just try to keep it simple. It's what's so difficult for us to do. Recently, someone asked me if there were any different levels or depth to mindfulness. And actually, one moment of mindfulness is just that. It's any time we're open and fully present. It's when you receive one cup of tea, or when you're really with the sound of the geese without interpreting it. It's when we just take one breath at a time, or one step at a time. It's when we're fully present, but not identified. It's when we let each moment come and go, just as it is. The more presence there are of these moments of mindfulness, the more we develop our own wisdom. And there are deeper and deeper levels of understanding possible when it comes from within in this way. One begins to see, as one pays attention, whether we're on retreat or in our daily life, that we can understand the conditions that will bring about happiness and what will bring about suffering. And when we learn the conditions that bring about happiness, there's more motivation and commitment to try to be mindful in the next moment. That's all we can do. 
let's just have that commitment for the next moment. And in that moment, when we actually do it, there's that contentment and peace. This past May and June, I was very lucky to be able to sit here at IMS for two months. And I was just uh, putting my laundry in the laundromat in the annex the other day. And I've been really busy running around and getting settled here and um, doing a million things and just rushing and rushing. And I stepped out the back door just and walked down along the cement path up into the annex. And it was so wonderful to remember what it was like to be sitting here. And we came in the spring when the buds were just forming and we watched the buds opening into flowers and then there were peach, little peach fruits on the trees as I left in the back. There's something so powerful about this practice that anywhere that you've done a lot of your walking and your sitting, you can be away from it for quite a while and you drop into that space and it's, oh yeah. It's just so special. And I remembered that there was this um, quote by Krishnamurti that somebody had written down and made a watercolor of in the annex in the woman's section that I stayed in. And this quote from Krishnamurti really helped me through my retreat for that two months. It was like a a theme for me. I was always grateful to whoever did the painting. He said that to be actually sensitive, not about something, but just to be sensitive, to be vulnerable, like that new spring leaf, which was born a few days ago, to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. Being in the present moment requires such courage. It requires this incredible vulnerability not to be in the past, not to be in the future, but just with this unknown that just moves in moment by moment. We never really know what's happening. And the reason why we're not in the moment is because it takes such courage to do this. It's such a surrender. It brings up such fear of death and the unknown or unpleasantness. It's the ability to let go of control and just flow with how it is. What is happening moment to moment is out of control. Empowerment or enlightenment is this ability to be fully present, open, and vulnerable, sensitive, but not lost 
in what's happening. It takes the most extraordinary balance. And when we can do it, it brings such happiness and peace. So we really have only one choice moment by moment. We can either be lost or at peace. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.